Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome you, especially if you're new or you've just been recently joining us. I'm Heather. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to be with you this morning. Well, I might be the only one who thinks this, maybe not, but it seems like there is more and more conflict just on the rise in our nation, Um, whether it's as heartbreaking as the recent shootings or it's the ever-polarizing issues that seem to be popping up every other day or the clash of, dare I say, cancel culture. Conflict actually means this. It means a collision. It means a disagreement, a fight, a battle, a struggle, a discord of interests or principles. Now, I know that we see this on a national scale, but we also see it in our communities. We see it in the church, sadly, and we see it in our families. I mean, we can't deny the fracture and just the the toll that this last year has taken on us, but what is so important to remember is that conflict is more than just between parties or generations or even races. What we know is from the Bible that there is another agenda at play, don't we? And it says that in Ephesians 6, 12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We see this collision of of kingdoms every day, whether we realize it or not, And a kingdom just simply is an administration. It's a way of ordering things to get things done. That's really all it is. With any new administration, there is a reordering of the values and the goals. Just like any new football coach, what do they do when they first come on staff? They fire everybody, (laughs) and then they bring in their own assistant coach staff, and then they set their own new rules and their own priorities of what they want to work on and get done. See, there are two kingdoms that are warring at present, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. There are two opposing kingdoms. One is ruled by God and one is ruled by Satan. And what defines these two kingdoms is their values. And we see this on full display in this passage today. And if you remember, we're in this series right now called The King's Cross, And in this series, during this season of Lent, we've been looking at Jesus' journey, haven't we? But, But it's not a journey to a throne, it's a journey to a cross. And if you remember last week, Andrew talked over the passage of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. These are the final days and the final hours of Jesus' life recorded on earth in these last couple chapters in the book of Mark. So we're going to jump back into the story today, again, picking up in chapter 14, this interaction. I mean, it is filled with betrayal. It's filled with arrest. It's filled with violence. There's lots of running. And dare I say, there's even a streaker 
Uh-huh, yeah. It's in there, I'm just saying. Okay, so today we're gonna look at some of these key characters, these key characters in this conflict, but we gotta remember, this conflict is way more than just Judas and the crowd versus Jesus and the disciples. It's a collision of two kingdoms. And through this, we're gonna see God start to reveal the values of his upside-down kingdom. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Lord, as always, we just want to start off by inviting your presence to come. And Lord, we recognize you're here, but we ask for more. We ask for more of your presence with us. Lord, would you show us the reality of your kingdom at work around us? We want to be part of your plan of restoration in this hurting world. God, would you open our eyes and ears to see and hear from you today, God? We just pray that you would have your way in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to our passage, and it is in Mark 14, 43 through 52, and we're going to unpack it just verse by verse. The setting, again, as we said, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the Mount of Olives. It's just outside of the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus has spent the last couple hours in agonizing prayer, and he's found strength and peace in the presence of God, just regarding the, ed- ev- the events that are just about to happen. And this is where we pick up the text where Andrew ended last week in verse 42. It says, rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Here is this mob approaching the garden as Jesus finishes talking with his disciples. They can see the torches coming from a distance. They can hear them approaching because scholars actually believe from the other accounts of this story and the other gospels that there's probably anywhere from 200 to 600 men in this crowd coming to get Jesus and his 11 disciples at the time. It would have been filled with Roman soldiers. It would have been some of the officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And Jesus sees them and he says to his disciples, okay, guys, prayer time's over, let's go. And instead of heading the other direction, he heads right into the crowd. And here, in the earliness of the morning, on Friday morning and in the darkness, Jesus begins to set into motion what's going to happen, which is his execution. And by late that afternoon, Jesus will be breathing his last breath. This happens really quickly. And then in verse 44, it says, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, so arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. If you remember, Michael actually talked about Judas just two weekends ago, and and Mark refers to him as a couple times here as one of the 12. It says it a couple times, and it's almost like Mark can't get over the fact that he was one of the 12 that lived and and walked and and slept and, and ate and watched the miracles of Jesus firsthand. I mean, I would have loved to see that. Here he is, one of the 12. I mean, how could this happen? And I'm sure you've heard this term before, uh, betrayed by a kiss 
or the kiss of death, this is actually where we get these terms from. And it means intimacy with something that subsequently brings about your destruction. But I've always wondered, why a kiss? I mean, why a kiss? Like, couldn't, couldn't Judas have come up to Jesus and been like, hey, there's the guy. That's the guy you want. Arrest him. And I get it. I mean, in those days, to know what someone looked like, you had to have been in their presence to recognize them, right? I mean, they didn't have Facebook. You know, they couldn't stalk them on Facebook, figure out what they looked like, or Google them. You know, they had to have been in their presence before. And I get it. It was nighttime. I mean, in those ancient days, like when it was nighttime, it was dark. It was dark. So I get it. But then also, like, there's also nothing really remarkable about what Jesus looks like. There's nothing special about what he looks like that's going to identify him, unlike probably some of the portrayals that you see where he has a big white sash. He didn't have a big white sash. (laughs) Or he had, like, light, like, halo around his head. He didn't have those markers to identify him. And I bet Judas... He's probably afraid that Jesus is going to do something. He's either going to flee or he's going to fight. So he comes to the garden, not just with this huge mob, but with a deceptive embrace, identifying Jesus to his assailants. I mean, how incredibly hurtful must this have been to Jesus, like salt in the wound? I mean, I... You see, kisses in those days, I mean, they they were not just a common greeting, but a kiss on the cheek, that was, that was something that you did between friends, between equals. I mean, it was, it was meant to be an act of affection, of love and respect, if this is anything but. This is anything but. I mean, have you ever felt that sting of betrayal in your life before? Maybe, maybe a spouse, uh, maybe like a coworker, or a leader in your life, or a trusted friend. And it is one of the worst hurts that we can endure. And usually, our level of pain often mirrors the depth of intimacy we have with that person. You know, how incredibly comforting is it to know that we can cry out to Jesus, who knows the pain, the sting of betrayal firsthand. He knows it. The pain and and the consequence of investing your life into someone and then only to have them turn around and and act in their own cruel self-interest. See, Jesus has already predicted this very moment, and he had actually given Judas a way out at dinner that night, but instead he chooses to still hand Jesus over for persecution and execution for what? A bit of notoriety and then 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, back in that day was the cost of a slave. Hmm. And then in verse 47, it continues, Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Does anyone know who this guy is? (laughs) Oh, you could probably take a good guess, right? Even though it's not actually stated here in this passage, John, in his account of this story, actually calls him out. He goes, yeah, it's it's Peter. It's Peter. (laughs) Here's Peter in his usual impulsive and dramatic fashion, trying to defend Jesus, and we don't know whether he exactly aimed for the ear or if he just kind of swung and he hit an ear. We don't know, but this small act of aggression could have started an all-out battle, and Jesus quickly, he quickly diffuses the conflict, and we can actually read a little bit more about what Jesus does here in Luke 
In Luke's account of the story, in, in chapter 22, verse 51, he says, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. He healed him. I mean, this, everybody's like ready to jump and then they just stop. I mean, they're ready to fight and then they're just bewildered. I mean, this ear that's like bleeding, just it's healed and completely fine. This man who's screaming is like, okay, all of a sudden. I mean, their, their anger is replaced with confusion. They actually watch a miracle of Jesus firsthand. I mean, who is this guy? Who is this guy that heals his enemies? Mm. And everything, what we see in, is also is that in Matthew, he actually records Jesus' response to Peter and why, and why he does this. And he says, put back your sword. Put it back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? I think there might be another reason why Peter pulls out his sword in this conflict. I think it might be because of what just happened earlier that day. See, I don't think Peter was just defending Jesus. I think he was defending himself, too, a little bit. Because I think he had something to prove, didn't he? Back in verse uh, 29, Peter said this. He said, even if everybody falls away, I will not. I will not. He's trying to prove something to Jesus here, isn't he? You know, and I get it. In conflict, it is so easy to be quick to defend ourselves, protect ourselves, without really checking our motives first. And when we feel backed in a corner, it's our instinct just to start swinging, right? And maybe not with a sword, but a lot of times with our words. We can react in ways that are unhelpful and sometimes downright hurtful. And I think it is so good for us to just stop sometimes in the heat of the moment and go, okay, wait, which, which kingdom am I operating in here, Lord? <laughs> Help me, Lord. Help me check my own heart. I mean, it's so healthy to sometimes confront our own justifications and our own reactions sometimes and to ask God, God, just would you help me? Give me your perspective. Give me your perspective. J.C. Ryle, who was a bishop, he actually said, to suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far harder than to fight a battle. Work for Christ may be done from many false motives, from excitement, from competition, from jealousy, or from a love of praise. Suffering for Christ will seldom be endured from any but one motive. And that motive is the grace and the love of God. You know, as we look at this scene unfolding, you know, the strange thing in all of it, in this chaotic scene, is that Jesus, Jesus is this just peaceful, serene image in this, in this whole crazy picture. You know, the story actually reads like Jesus is the one in control here, not the mob. Like, he's dictating what's happening. He's directing affairs. Because for him, if you think about it, the struggle and the conflict in the garden, it's already over for him. He just went through that. That's where he was on his face and knees. He was praying to God. And here he is standing now with this incredible, distinct peace 
because he knows he's following the will of God. I love how in John 18, John you know, writes about this same event, and he says this. He says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They f- I mean, can you imagine like hundreds of men just hope, you know, like at really just one word? In English, we read it as I am he, but in the Aramaic, it would have been one word, and it means when Jesus says his name, he says, I am. It's one word in the Aramaic, but in English, our translation is I am. Has that, you ever heard that name before? It's the same name that God uses to identify himself to Moses in the Old Testament, isn't it? And the power in that name, I mean, the entire crowd goes flat. That's an incredible scene. I mean, really what it's saying is they, they can't touch this guy <laughs> if, he's, if he doesn't give them his permission. I mean, he says that in John 10, 18. He says, no one can take my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and, and the authority to take it up again. He willingly... This command I I received from my father. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be arrested that night, but he is no victim. The reason Christ died is because he chose to die. No one took his life from him. He willingly laid it down for you and for me. Willingly. Jesus knows He knows what it's like to walk through this. And he says to the crowd, he says in verse 48, he says, guys, am I I leading a rebellion here? (laughs) He said that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me. And every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. See, Jesus reveals the hypocrisy of the leaders because Jesus never fought them, and he wasn't in hiding. They could have arrested him at any time, but Jesus knows the truth. He knows that these men did not arrest him when he was in the temple because they knew they had no real case against him. Their only hope against Jesus was to arrest him and have an illegal trial at night before anyone was the wiser. They also did not arrest him publicly because they knew the crowds would probably be on his side and they couldn't face a riot or that kind of publicity. So they come with swords and clubs, almost like they're expecting armed resistance. But Jesus is saying, guys, if you come to me with swords because you think I'm going to retaliate with a sword, it shows that you don't know me at all. You don't know me at all. I mean, swords and clubs, they're symbols of force and power that compels behavior, right? It's to make people to do what you want them to do. And here we just see this incredible clash of values, of of kingdoms. Jesus is saying, you guys don't understand me if you think that swords and clubs are going to stop me. I'm a new kind of power. The kingdom of this world compels through force, military power, political power, money. But the kingdom of God is so different. 
It's so different. And Jesus, let's be honest, yes, he is actually leading a revolution here, but it's a totally different kind of revolution. And it's a much greater one than, than we've ever seen in history. The kingdoms of this world, they just keep the same things on top of their list. They just swap power. But Jesus isn't putting a new set of people in power here. He is bringing a totally different administration, a totally different administration. See, Jesus has one way of doing things, which we'll get into in a second, but the world has a completely different way of going about to get things done. What defines these two kingdoms is really what they value and how they function. So what are the kingdom of, these, of the world's values? What, what are their values? Generally speaking, I would say it's like things like fame and, and prestige, being on top, being in control. They, mon- they value money and social mobility, comfort, being known by everybody. And it's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy to see this as a trap for people that are you know, in power, that have leadership or fame. But what about us? What about us? I mean, do we struggle? Do we struggle with the pull of being popular and admired and rich and famous and influential? I mean, it's worth looking at, you know, what are our values and what are our goals in this life? And then how does the kingdom of this world function? Generally speaking, it's through things like force. If you don't bend your knee, well, then we'll bend it for you. And if it's through coercion, uh, we'll coerce you to do what we need, and it's through manipulation and deception. We'll make you think that we're on your side, all the while we're just getting what we really want. It's through the means of money, and, you know, if I need to get to the top, well, I'll buy my way to the top, I'll buy my way into power. And, and when we hear these examples, it's easy to think of, like, what we see in the world today, like the headlines of, of rich parents buying their kids' acceptance into the Ivy League schools and things like that. But what does this mean for our lives? Do we ever use coercion or control to get what we want? Do we ever overspend our money to fulfill our own needs and agendas and our over-desires for stuff? I mean, this is how the kingdom of the world operates, and yet the tension and the temptation to also use these tactics are in our face every day. It's there. But the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus' kingdom is so very, very different than the world's. I mean, let's just be honest. It doesn't make any sense to the world. (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, the kingdom of God values things like servanthood. It values forgiveness. It values the weak becoming strong. It, It values the poor the hurting, the condemned, the lost, the first going last, and it values humility. See, see, Jesus is saying, this is how I'm going to change things, not through control and through power. I'm going to put others above myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve, and I'm going to sacrifice for others, and I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I will give up my power, even to the point where I give up my life. See, right now we live in this tension 
between these two kingdoms, one kingdom constantly appealing to our flesh, telling us that power and that money and prestige will make life worth it, right? But all the while, we have this tension. We're wrestling with the truth that, wait, no, the, the reason for my life is, is the goal is to know God, is to know God and to be more and more like his son, Jesus. So here's where the passage starts to really confront us. Which kingdom are we living in? Which kingdom are we living in? If we don't know, just ask the question, well, what do I value? <laughs> what do I value? And, and, and how do I try to influence others? Well, the passage closes in verses 50 through 52. And we read this in verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. This is where all the words of Jesus prior to this moment predicting this very moment comes crashing into reality for the disciples. I mean, it is one thing to hear it. It is totally another to watch it happening right in front of you. The disciples watch Jesus willingly be just tied up and arrested and dragged away by this crowd. And they run. They run. I mean, all of them, including Peter including Peter, just like Jesus predicted. He said in verse 27, you will all fall away. You will all fall away. I mean, even in Zechariah 13, 7, it says it's going to happen this way. It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then we read these last two verses in 51 and 52. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, see, I told you it was here, okay, <clears throat> was following Jesus. We, <laughs> when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. The gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, they actually take a lot of, of and write, write a lot of their gospels on the basis of Mark because it was the first one written. And they include in their gospels practically everything that is in this passage in Mark except for these last two verses, <laughs> except for these last two verses. Well, Mark thinks it's worth mentioning. Mark thinks it's worth mentioning, but no one else. Most scholars think that that's because this young man is actually Mark himself. It was his way of saying, I was there. I was there without mentioning his own name. So what we know is, is later on in the book of Acts, we know that the meeting place in the headquarters for the church in Jerusalem is at the house of Mary, which is Mark's own mother. And there's a lot of scholars that believe that this is possibly where Jesus and the disciples had the Last Supper. Was it at Mark's house? <laughs> yeah, could have happened. And he would have just been a teenager at this time. Maybe he just tagged along for the night. And as we see the disciples begin to flee, this young man tries to run too, but he's caught and has to struggle free and leave his clothes behind. But what you need to remember here is that public nakedness, though it's funny now, it was, it was incredibly, incredibly shameful in the Jewish, Jewish culture. culture. It, was, it was like the ultimate shame. It was the ultimate shame. And it's as if he's saying here, even I would have rather had the shame of nakedness this shame of nakedness than go through the trial with Jesus. If it is Mark, boy, it would give a lot of credibility to this story. I mean, can you imagine Mark? I mean, he's so excited. He finally gets to write himself into the story. And, and this is the light that he paints himself in. Like, I was there too. And I, I fled too. 
I fled too. I was the same as everybody else. I mean, just think about it a second. I mean, if we were there, if we were there as we watched this unfold in the garden, I mean, would we have fled too? I think we would have. I think we would have. As the worship team starts to just head on back up, I want to read this closing verse. And it says this in Romans 3, 10 through 12. It says, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who actually outright seeks God. All have turned away. You see, I think that apart from the grace of God, we would all still be running away from him. <laughs> We'd all still be running away. I think this is why this is such an incredible detail, these last two verses. Because no matter if it's Mark or not, no matter that, he is recounting this naked man's flight from the garden. Mark is reminding us of another garden, the Garden of Eden, where there were people there who were given a test and they failed. They were exposed as naked and they fled in shame. And then centuries later, here we are in this garden and there's another test and everybody fails, either through betrayal or swinging swords or running away, except one, except one. Jesus is standing firm. He's facing something even worse than the world's sword, the ultimate sword of divine justice. He's standing firm for you and for me. And on the cross, Jesus is getting what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. And even though we run from him, he still chooses to die for us. I mean, just think about it. I mean, Jesus still chooses these deserters to be the one on which he builds his church. I mean, these are the guys. <laughs> these are the guys. I mean, what does that mean for you and me today? That means that no matter what you've done, Jesus has died for all of it. He has died for all of it so that you and I can be brought into the kingdom of God and to in, into his embrace, into his embrace. Will we, will we accept the invitation of Jesus to come in and rearrange our lives, rearrange our values and our loves? This is the great reversal. When we place Jesus as the true king of our lives, we no longer live by the kingdom of this world, but we live by the kingdom of God. Amen. Well, let's stand. We're going to uh, just go back into a time of worship right now, and, and then we're going to take corporate communion together. So if you haven't grabbed the elements yet, feel free during worship to just go back to the back tables and grab those and bring them back to your seats. And in this time, I would just encourage you to be thinking about this story. What about Jesus' response here stood out to you? What might God be revealing to us today about what we value and how we try to influence others. Let's worship together. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.